0: If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We find ourselves working through this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And we've been uh, working through it uh, fairly slowly. We're in verse 6. We've kind of taken a a little bit of break from it though. Uh, The last couple weeks, John Duba was here. And then last week we focused our attention on the safety of human life. So uh, we have taken a little bit of a break. But if you remember, a few weeks ago, we were in verses three through five. And just going back there for a a brief moment to help us get our our bearings as we move uh, forward to verse six. Remember, I, I opened that message with a story about a man on a donkey. And he was riding down the road and he saw a sparrow in the middle of the road who was lying there. And he asked the sparrow why he was lying in the middle of the road with his little legs sticking straight up. And the sparrow said that there was a rumor that the heavens were falling. Of course, the the point of the story is that just as that little bird couldn't hold off heaven from falling by his scrawny little bird legs. So you and I would be foolish to think that we could hold off the divine wrath of God by our scrawny legs of human achievement. The fact is, God cannot be and is not appeased by one's personal achievement or their intellect, but one must be born again, born from above, given a new and divine life through the avenue of God's word by his Holy Spirit. In other words, when God gives new life, when one is born again, he doesn't use anything from the natural person Human beings are fallen in body, soul, spirit. And what God does is implant a new spirit that has its its source in God himself. God doesn't take the old soul and start to make a, a new soul of that. I think that's the picture that we sometimes get. But God gives new life that desires new things. And I think we see that as we read this text. Um, So join me. If you would, stand with me as we honor the the reading of Scripture. And we'll just read through uh, this this conversation here between Nicodemus and Jesus. And note that we're going to focus our attention on verse 6 this morning. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, you are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out, carried out in God. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you the, to guide us as we come to your Word. Lord, we pray that you would work in a in a tremendous way. We. We are after truth. Lord, we pray that you would, you would lead us and, and guide us. We recognize this is your word, that you spoke to us for our benefit. And we pray that, that you would be at work in our minds, in our, in our hearts. Lord, free us from distraction. Free us from those things in our, in our minds that might be holding us back from the truth. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in a marvelous way, would shine a, a spotlight on Jesus Christ for his glory. And may he be exalted this morning in all that is said. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in in verse six, then that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Just think about what that verse is saying for a moment. That which gives birth to flesh is flesh. And that which gives birth to spirit is spirit. I I think it's helpful here to think about this in terms of, of genetics a little bit. Last April, our, our cat had kittens, right? And we'd been kind of talking about uh, this was what was going to happen. Our, our children knew what to expect. And in fact, if our cat gave birth to, to puppies, uh, the boys would have thought it was very strange. They might have been happy. But it isn't right that a, a cat gives birth to puppies. That just doesn't happen. When you plant a tomato plant, you expect it to produce tomatoes. That's how things work. This is the the natural process. The, The flesh produces what is natural to it, and the result is what is sinful. In other words, people do not produce spiritual things. On the other hand, and we've already made this case that new birth is is solely from God. It isn't anything in the person. It isn't God and the person working together to accomplish salvation. It is from God alone. And what comes from what God produces in the life of the person is characteristic of God. What the spirit produces is spirit. It is sinless and eternal. So you see this picture, right? What, what the flesh produces is flesh, sinful. What the spirit produces is not sinful. It's eternal. It's sinless. So let's start with that first phrase here. What is born of the flesh is flesh. But the first thing we need to do is understand what Jesus means here when he uses the term flesh. Of course, with any passage, you need to understand that the terms that are involved in the text. I was just reading the other day about a, um, a person was talking about how to understand the Bible, and this person said that one thing that he did is he, when he read the Bible, was he wrote down words in the margins that he didn't uh, understand, and he needed to go back and, and look up, and what they mean in, in context. Not a bad idea. Sometimes there are things in the Bible that are difficult to understand, and what we want to make sure is that we're not reading our own understanding of these things back into the text. The term flesh here, I think, is, is one of those words, that we could have this tendency of reading our own understanding of the word back into it. Because on one hand, the word is, is pretty simple, but we also realize that the word is used in a variety of ways in Scripture. In our own current understanding of the word flesh, it, we refer to the, the fleshly parts of the, of the body. It's the skin as opposed to the, the bones and the organs. It, a synonym, I, I think, would be skin. I, I can't think of a, a better one. But this isn't what is meant by it in the Bible in the Bible, the word flesh refers to the entire person, the individual, the, the body, the spirit, soul. The, um, in the Hebrew, the word would be nephesh, a, a living being, right? God breathed the, the breath of life into to Adam after he fashioned him out of the dust of the ground and he became nephesh, it's a, a living being. That's the idea of, of flesh. It's the body, the individual, the, the spirit, the soul, the, the whole thing all in one. Now, We've made the case previously that the whole person then was affected by the fall, that there was no part of the person that was left unstained by sin. So all of this flesh then would be, after the fall, would be motivated by the sinful nature. So let me explain this a little bit. The the start of Genesis, in Genesis 2, so pre-fall... When God introduced Adam to Eve, Adam said this. He says, now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. What did Adam mean when he said they will become one flesh? He wasn't only speaking of a bodily union or a sexual union there. Of course, that's part of it. But what he was saying is that man and woman, then, this, this woman that was introduced to him was a, a united being. She was Nephis. She was a living being, a flesh just like him. One organism just like him. They were both flesh. Flesh of my flesh. They were both the same thing. So at the start, pre-fall, the word flesh described the the whole human being, what we are, that organism, nephesh. After the fall, things changed. Flesh is is something then, it is slightly different. It still involves all of the person, the whole organism, the the nephesh. But it is all of this person that is moved and motivated by a depraved nature. After the fall, the whole being is, is tainted, is, is, is messed up, is marred by sin, and the fall touched every part of, of that being, so that means that, that all of flesh, all of the person, then is motivated by what has corrupted it, as opposed to the spirit. So the, the flesh just naturally takes on this, this, this little nuance in, in meaning. As to this whole being that is motivated by what has come up on it and, and corrupted it, the curse of sin and death. Our boys like to watch those funny uh, fail videos on, on YouTube or funniest home videos. You know what I'm, I'm talking about. And often at the start of the video, there's a, a guy or doing something like um, rollerblading downstairs, for instance, right? And, our boys will watch the TV and be like, yeah, that's a bad idea. <laughs> well, anyway, we were watching a, a video, a Funniest Home Videos or YouTube uh, one day, and, and, and there's one of these where there was a, a game of tug-of-war going on. There was many people on each side in this muddy mess in the middle, and there was these groups that were pulling as hard as they could on the, on the rope. And, of course, one Group on the video pulled the other group into the mud, and they were falling all over one another and it was it was pretty funny. but the point of, of tug of war is that the strongest side wins. This is really what human nature was like before the fall. that the center of the person right the, the soul was like the, the marker in the middle uh, on one side was the, the body and its, its certain appetites. And on the other side, there was the Spirit who knew and understood and and desired uh, what God wanted. And we need to understand that God designed people so that the Spirit would, would dominate. In other words, the path and development of the human being would be decided by the Spirit. But when Adam died, when Adam sinned, and he died, his soul, not physically, but his soul and and spirit, something we talked about before, then people were not led by the spirit anymore. They were led by their fleshly appetites. And I don't have to tell you this, but I will, that the meaning of this is that even the proper functions of the body and, and what we think of as human nature is distorted and perverted by sin. So when we speak of human nature today, we usually don't think of it as a positive thing. And that's because we understand that human nature after the fall was tainted by sin and therefore is totally distorted. In other words, now there's no one pulling the rope on the other side after the fall, there's no tug-of-war because the flesh rules. I I hope that that makes sense, that which is born of the flesh is is flesh. The flesh begets flesh. It it might be helpful, I think, to to think of it in terms of of other words that the Bible uses, like synonymous words for for flesh. (laughs) When we talk about the the meaning of flesh, the importance of defining terms, we also realize that much of what the Bible says concerning uh, the flesh, it does with words that are synonymous to it. Uh, We see this in a reference to the the old man or the old nature. Sometimes the the word heart, the the center of of the human being, is is used synonymously with flesh. Uh, The word carnal or soulish, the, the human or natural man, These are all words that are used that way. But the the point here with these terms is that the natural person, the person that is in the the flesh, cannot obey or even understand God. And this is where the the image of a a tug-of-war, I think, is is so helpful, at least to me, because people in their their natural state, there's there's nothing nothing for the flesh to play tug-of-war against. There's no spirit to drive or lead them. But instead, they're led by their own appetites, the appetite of the flesh. Let me just point to a a few places in Scripture where this idea is is taught. In in Psalm 51, verse 5, for instance, David said that he was sinful at the point of birth, even even from conception. And his point here is that from that point... He started living as a natural person, a carnal man. He was motivated by the flesh. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says that it is from within, from the heart of men that come evil thought, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lawlessness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. These evils come from inside and to make a man unclean, he says. It comes from who we are. In Romans 8, 8, Paul writes that these controlled by a sinful nature cannot please God. I think there in that text, especially you get that tug-of-war image in fallen creatures, there's no there's no tug of war. It's just the, the flesh that is that is ruling. And therefore, we will not and cannot please God. Now, remember something here. And I think there's a trap that we can fall into. And some of us, I think, are more prone to, to fall into that than others. But some of us think that, you know, these verses really don't refer to ourselves. They refer to, to others. They refer to really bad people, they refer to criminals and perverts, but not us. They don't refer to the people that we know and love. The fact is, these verses describe every person since the fall. Every person apart from the miraculous intervention of God to save them. Every person apart from the sovereign and saving work of God, these verses describe you, unable to please God, living in the flesh, take time to to think about that. Just what you were before Christ intervened on your behalf. It, It makes one appreciate the grace of God. Because left on our own, we were just leading ourselves the best way we knew how. And all the while, we were going further and further from God. Not closer to him. Fact is, it's impossible in the flesh to get closer to God. This is actually a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? This person is led around by their flesh that is tainted by sin, unable to please God. So the the question that is asked at this point is is, is what can I do? Actually, if somebody's asking that question, what can I do? I actually think that's a, a question that one asks when they're recognizing that Christ has the only answer to their plight. They recognize that they're without hope. They're saying, what can, what can I do? It kind of uh, brings you back to the, the picture of the, the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 who asked, what must I do to be saved? These are people who are actually responding to what God is doing in their life when he is giving them eyes to, to see the, the truth. My, my point here, though, is those in the flesh, those apart from Christ, are, are said in Scripture clearly, it, it, unable to please God, but yet, we see, so this is, on, on one side, you have Scripture that teaches this. There, there's these people, they're they're in the flesh, they're unable to please God, they're not moving toward God, they're moving away from Him. But yet, we see non-Christians do good things all the time. We have friends and relatives that are not believers. And certainly we believe the Scriptures are true, that these are led by the flesh and are unable to please God, but we also realize that these people are not as bad as they possibly can be. There are some good things about them, right? Perhaps you're sitting here this morning or you're listening to this and you're you're not a believer and you realize that what we've been talking about here for the last several minutes is you, but you're also thinking to yourself, I'm not a Ted Bundy. I'm not a, a Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not a sexual pervert. I'm not even heading that way. In fact, I'm heading the opposite way. I work hard. I provide for my family. I love people. I'm trying to do good things. I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to better myself. And what you're saying about non-believers in the flesh doesn't seem to be speaking about me. I'm not godless. I'm not, I'm not those things. I'm not heading the right way. I might not be a Christian, but I'm not a bad person. We need to talk about that for a moment. In fact, I think our text has something to say there. Just, let me say this. The reason why God does not save people on the basis of anything in them is simply this. That sinful human nature will never produce anything other than sinful human nature. That's what our text says. Flesh produces flesh. That's the truth of our text. Now, this isn't to say that people want to and desire to be as bad as they possibly can be. That's not what we're saying. That isn't the case. Think about it like this. In our yard, there's a, a place... Um, just Oh, not that way, that way. Um, there, there's a, a place where there was an old well. From what I understand, people out here used to drink well water. You know, correct me later if I'm wrong, but just stick with the illustration. Um, but now the water comes through a different source. It comes through rural water. So when we first moved here, there was a, a wooden construction out in the yard. It was this well-type thing. It looked like a, a well, like a wooden bird bath type well thing. It was a, a decoration that they had put around the, the pump, the, the well. And it was in pretty rough shape, so we decided that we, would, that we would get rid of it, so it's not there anymore. But the purpose of that, a long time ago, was to make that, that well, that, that pump that, that came out of the ground, look good. Now here's the the thing with well water. Water from the well is still well water. It's the same water no matter how the pump looks, no matter how you decorate it. The pump doesn't affect the water. The, The wooden construction, the decoration around it that one puts up around it doesn't change the water itself. I, I, think it is with how, I think this is how it is with those who are living in the flesh, right? They, they spend their, their time trying to, to paint and, and decorate the, the pump. They, they try and improve on the old nature. They try to make the old nature look good. A, a graphic image of this comes from Jesus himself in Matthew 23, where he's speaking to the religious elite, who probably do this more than any other, try to make the old nature look good. He says that these are like whitewashed tombs or a cup that is pristine on the outside. But under the whitewashed tomb, there's nothing but a, a rotting corpse. Inside the cup that looks wonderful on the outside, there's, there's grime and, and, and gunk on the inside. You see, no matter how one that is in the flesh, tries to improve or, or better themselves, what they're doing is, is painting and, and decorating the, the pump. but are trying to make the, the godless flesh look like something it's, it's not, but it is, because the source is the same. It, it's making the, the grave look really good from above, but it doesn't change what's really there. The water that, that comes from the pump is still the same water, You can decorate it. You can paint it. You can do all those things, but it's still the same water. You can't change the water by painting the pump. You change it by changing the source. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit, spirit. The source has to change. I I think that... Kenneth Oost summarizes this pretty well. He says this, and it's kind of a, a long quote, but just bear with me. The teaching here is that man in his totally depraved condition cannot be improved. Reformation will not change him into a new subject for the kingdom of God. The flesh is incurably wicked and cannot by any process be changed so as to produce a righteous life. What that person needs, Jesus says, is a new nature, a spiritual nature, which will produce a life pleasing to God and which will be a life fit for the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus teaches. The new birth is a permanent thing, produces a permanent change in the life of the individual and makes him a new subject for the kingdom of God, end quote. So, If you've been following the the progression of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus here, as we've been talking about it, the the heart of the the teaching is is very clear uh, already in this conversation by verse 6 that a person cannot be saved by any human effort because human effort can only produce human results. No matter the human effort, it will only be like painting a pump expecting new water. In the next chapter, where Jesus promises the Samaritan word, uh, the Samaritan woman living water, she understood enough to know that that water, that living water, must come from a different source other than the water, other than the source that she was accustomed to getting her water from. A person must be born again. But all of this, our conversation about tug of wars and. Making water pumps look better really leads us to another question that we need to answer. And that is, what happens to the old fleshly nature when one is born again? You see regeneration or being born again is the giving of a a new and divine life. That's a, a simple definition. So when one receives this new nature, this new spirit that is a product of the Holy Spirit, what happens to the old nature? What happens to the flesh? Some would say that the flesh is just eradicated. Others would say that the flesh is transformed, so it isn't sinful anymore. But that isn't that isn't right. Uh, that kind of thinking isn't helpful. It's not biblical. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It isn't that the old nature is transformed or done away with. Paul had a new nature, but he also was one to admit that his old nature was still in him and it was bad. And it remained bad. In Romans 7, 18, he says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, if I have the desire to do what is right, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In other words, and this is even more clear when you read the entire uh, text there of Romans chapter chapter 7, but Paul's old nature struggled against his new nature, causing him to, to cry out to God for the victory that only God could provide. In other words, now there's a tug-of-war, and the only way that, that, that he, Paul can, can win in the tug-of-war is through victory in Christ Jesus. God doesn't just give you a kick in the pants and then expect you to be victorious. The old nature is still there. It's still corrupt. The difference is the power is available to those who are born again to be victorious. So the flesh is still there. It struggles against the new nature. We learn from our text that the new nature can do nothing bad. What comes from the spirit is spirit. The old nature can do nothing good. <laughs> you see, see where I'm going here? There's this conflict in the Christian life. There's, there's what the spirit is producing, what the flesh is doing, and there's, there's conflict. It's like what John Piper likes to say, that the Christian life must be lived in a wartime mentality, in a constant struggle. I don't know about you, but some, were, uh, some people were led to, to believe that when you put your faith in, in Christ Jesus, that your struggle is all over. I think we've all heard those testimonies of uh, the the drug addict that came to Christ and instantly his addiction was taken from him. Not saying that doesn't happen. It does happen, and it's a wonderful grace that God would would do that and and free him from that, that struggle, that temptation. I think, though, that some people think that this is supposed to be the norm. That for the Christian, there isn't supposed to be struggle anymore after you come to Christ. That when there is struggle, that something is wrong with you and it, and it can lead people to great discouragement. How come I still struggle? We need to remember when we hear those great testimonies that these people are, are not saying that God took away every sin or every desire to act in the flesh. They're saying that God dealt with that one thing. And if they are saying that God took away all of their desire to sin, that there's no sin left in there, something is deeply wrong with their understanding of the Christian faith on this side of eternity. We must remember that Paul... The, greatest, the great apostle struggled. He was frustrated with himself. We also need to remember that the apostle John understood this as well. In 1 John 1.8, he says that if we claim to be without sin, we what? Deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. Why do we sin? Because we still have a flesh nature. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with sin. And it doesn't mean that there is something wrong with you if you do have that struggle. One of the interesting things about the Christian life is that in a very real sense, the beginning of the Christian life is actually the beginning of the struggle. Before, there was really no struggle. There was no new nature for the flesh to struggle against. Paul must have been asked the the question over and over What prevents us from just going on and sinning? If we're saved from grace, if we're saved by grace apart from works, if our sins have been dealt with and we're good in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done, not what we've done, why don't we just keep sinning? Because actually, if we keep sinning, isn't it going to just highlight the grace of God? The more we sin, the more God covers it with his grace. Paul answers that question, by the way, by saying, Absolutely not. The problem with the question is the question isn't anticipating the the new nature in the Christian. If all we were was the old nature and our desire was to sin, we could certainly keep going on sinning. But God has given us a new and divine life. We're regenerate. We're born again. There's a new nature that is born of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit cannot continue to sin. So there is this war. There is this conflict in the Christian. The Christian can't just go on continuing to sin without struggle, without war. Here's my point. We have been given... This new spirit, by the Holy Spirit, precisely so the flesh will not have victory in our lives. So that we will not be dominated by the flesh as we once were. So here's the big question. If the Christian life is a struggle, and it is, how then are we to be victorious? Let me leave you with just three things quickly. First, we need to think about the old nature as the Bible does. We need to think about the old nature. As Christians, this is how we we perceive the old nature. We perceive it as dead. It is not dead. It's there. Of course, we're not saying that it isn't with us. It is with us. There is this struggle. But for the Christian, we realize that the, plow, that the power of the flesh was defeated by the cross. It's like a, a lion that has been caged. It's no threat. It's as good as dead. It's a dead issue. That's how we, that's how we see the, the flesh. Paul says in Romans 6.11, count yourselves dead to sin. Is there... Is there sinfulness that still lives in you? Is it, is it there? Can you, can you give into it? Yeah, but how do you, how do you see this? How do you understand yourself in the light of this? Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, we're told to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. And then Paul lists many things that belong to the flesh. Put it to death. Count it as dead. Put it in a cage. Notice, though, if you put to death, the theological word there would be to mortify. Mortification, mortify, those things that, that means they're still there. But for the Christian, we realize that in Christ Jesus, there is tremendous power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that is given us in this life to be victorious over this. And when the power of the resurrection is on your side, pulling that tug-of-war rope, the other side is as if it was dead, right? Second, and I think this is so practical, we are to to feed the new nature and to starve the old. I've illustrated this before a long time ago uh, by speaking of two two fighting dogs in the individual, right? The, The dog that you feed... Inside is the dog that is going to to win, but perhaps just stick with the caged lion illustration. The, the old nature is like this lion that is capable of devouring the Christian life, but God says he 's placed that lion in a cage where he 's dead, and his activity, so far as the, the Christian life is concerned is is inert he 's caged. think of your life as a Christian like this. You're constantly living with a caged lion. It's It's as if he's dead, and there's Christian victory in your life, and you become accustomed to that Christian victory. But here's what sometimes happens. You realize that you're victorious, and you become complacent, and you forget about the lion that's in the cage. And you start exposing yourselves to the the world's way of thinking and the world's way of acting. And you start giving more and more into this. All the while, what you're doing without even realizing is feeding the lion. And the lion is in that cage getting stronger and stronger. And pretty soon, if you keep doing that, he'll be able to break out of the cage and devour your life. We're not to to feed the caged lion. We starve it. You don't indulge in the flesh. You study the scriptures. You continue to give yourself to, to learning and the pursuit of godliness. You don't become complacent. You don't fiddle with, with sinfulness. You don't buy into the world's way of thinking. You starve it. Third, this might sound a little cliche, but the Bible tells us to live by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, we read this, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Pretty apt to what we're talking about. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I mean, you have a pretty good idea what it means to walk in the flesh. It's recognizing that there is a struggle. We realize what the flesh wants, and we determine to follow the desire or the will that we have towards spiritual things. Practically, we place ourselves in a situation where we're going to grow. Read the Bible, spend time in prayer, talk with others about decisions that are we're making because we want to do what is good and we want to do what is right. You, you, you surround yourselves by... People that that want you to to grow and pursue godliness, who are going to to challenge you in in truth. (coughs) When we're in step with the Spirit, when we're exposing ourselves to the things of God and, and living as the Spirit desires, then we start living victoriously. And I will say this: the determination is not to live victoriously. That's getting the cart before the horse. And in that, you might succeed for a short time, but you're going to fall in the end. The determination is to walk in the Spirit in light of what Christ has done for you. To read your Bible, to expose yourself to godly teaching, to be around other believers. And when we walk in the Spirit, we start to see the fruits of the Spirit in our life. We become characterized by victory. By love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, self control. These are the things that start characterizing who we are. These are the things that start to grow in us as we become more and more victorious in the Christian life. Let's pray.